0: Six verses, verses 15 through 20. Colossians, in summary, is really about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So far, we have been studying in the first 14 verses Paul's introduction or his salutation to the church at Colossae, a new group of believers who came to faith because a disciple of Paul, Epaphras, had gone back there, probably Epaphras' hometown, and shared Christ, and God gave birth to the church there in Colossae. And so, Paul, not even having seen them, writes with great passion for these people who are his brothers and sisters now in christ but he also writes as an apostle one who has been given divine authority to be a prophet as it were to them speaking the word of god he thanks god for their faith that god has given them for their love for one another beautiful salutation packed with meaning packed with depth packed with doctrine but nothing in the new testament maybe not even in the whole bible is quite like the next six verses it is probably Uh, the most succinct statement on who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, and then, of course, we can then make uh, the right question to follow, what are we supposed to do in light of it? Just in these six verses, some scholars believe this is a a hymn that was sung by the early church or a creed spoken by early Christians. Paul, as an apostle now, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, utters these words... They are part of scripture, part of infallible truth. Hear now God's word, his sacred word about Christ. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Father, if it would please you, please let me preach Christ. That in the end, someone here would be strengthened. That someone would be saved. That you would receive all glory. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As you know, history has provided many cult personalities. People who have gathered a following for one reason or another. And we could think of it in terms of religious uh, persuasions and movements and people that would typify those movements. Moses, to some degree, even has that kind of cult personality now among the Jews. Think of Buddha, Confucius, Mohammed, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, others. Even in our own current day, maybe this is, that's a little out of touch for some of us. In this day, there is really no shortage of personages to follow for whatever reason. The Pope The Dalai Lama, Louis Farrakhan, celebrities, kings, and other cult of personality type people. Uh, Think of just the celebrity cult uh, sect there is today. People that just live to find out what happened in so-and-so's life. Uh, I want to see a picture of their baby. I want to know what they bought or buy something off of eBay that they might have wiped their mouth with. Sounds foolish, but that's what people do. They chase after these cult of personalities. We may be tempted to think that's unique to our time, but in the time of the Colossians, there was a similar battle for uh, supremacy among the very cult personalities there were. Uh, There was a Gnostic movement in that time where you had individuals who claimed, by philosophizing and other ways of putting things, that they had secret knowledge, that if you followed them and were their disciple, you would gain a higher status, a a higher level of being. Uh, there There was emperor worship. There was moses worship in that day angel worship there were as many cult personality types in those days as there are today in fact what we have before us in the immediate words that come after his salutation his introduction is a profound doctrinal statement about jesus christ that sets him apart from all of those personalities and i hope for you that it gives you great confidence that the one whom you have pledged your allegiance to is not one cult figure among many but is the one through whom was made the entire universe. Let's look together at this wonderful passage about Jesus Christ, answering the questions, who is Jesus Christ? What has he done? What is he doing? And then how shall we live in light of that? First, who is Jesus Christ? Verse 15 starts by saying, He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. The image of the invisible God in verse 15. What does this mean? Image literally means, in a general way, a figure or a likeness of. Now, you and I have been created in the image of God, but we are not the image of God. Christ is the image of God, which is another way of saying he is God. Now, the complexity comes when we understand the triunity of God or try to understand the triunity of God. You have the three members of the Trinity, all God, Yet in the same way, they manifest each other. We are informed about God the Father and God the Son by God the Holy Spirit. We are informed about the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, by God the Son and God the Father. God the Father reveals God the Son and the Spirit, and it constantly works within the members of the Trinity to reveal one another as God's glory. The image of the invisible God is a way of saying he himself is God, yet the person of Christ is distinct. This is referred to again in verse 19. For in him, that is Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Notice it doesn't say a little bit of deity or some of God dwelled in Christ. All the fullness, no better way of saying God is Christ. Christ is God. The second person of the Trinity. The second member. The triune Godhead. The image of the invisible God. Also, verse 15 declares that he is the firstborn of all creation this is an important statement that demands explanation it's been used by many to say that see this shows that jesus isn't god rather he is created he's the firstborn of creation that means he's the first thing created jehovah's witnesses will teach you that they will say that but we have to understand what the term firstborn means biblically and in its context in the language firstborn can definitely mean the first person born to someone but what it normally means is it's referring to the rank that a person has as a firstborn. They don't have to be firstborn to have the rank and privilege of firstborn. To call someone firstborn is more of a reference to how they rank their, their privilege, uh, their statement of superiority even, or preeminence, as is alluded to later in the same text understanding what it means to call something firstborn is key to understanding what is being said about Christ. Not that he's the first created thing, but that he is the highest ranking of of all things. A couple passages help us understand this. In Exodus 4, you don't have to turn there, but remember this story. Exodus 4, verse 22, has God speaking to Moses about what he should say to Pharaoh regarding letting Israel go. Listen to the words. God says to Moses, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Now, is Israel the nation, the first people who would be called God's people? Definitely not. All the text that comes before Genesis 12, we have several people who are rightly related. Enoch, not being the least of them, who walk with God. Uh, Among others, Abraham, before he was he was declared as the father of that nation, was chosen by God. And Virtually every person, Noah included, who showed obedience to God as a fruit of God's grace to them would be considered people who were God's people. So it's not to say that Israel is the first people, firstborn of God, first people to be his people, but he now, among the nations, Israel's my firstborn. They're my first. They're, they are where my heart is. They're the ones who are set above the other nations. I will work through them. To come to me is to come through them. High ranking or privilege. That's what comes from being firstborn. But even more vividly than this refers to David in Psalm 89. God says about David, I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him. Then in Psalm 89, 27, listen to what it says. And I will make him, that's David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, you all know probably from your Bible uh, history and trivia that David's the youngest of several sons. He's not the firstborn son. But God makes him the firstborn, means meaning that he bestows upon him the highest rank, the highest level of privilege. So when we come to the text here in Colossians, where Jesus is referred to, the firstborn of all creation, understand it means the highest ranking. He's put over all the creation. In fact, we know that he is not created because it says literally... For by him all things were created. All things means all things. So he already was that he might create all things. He himself was not created. John refers to this in his gospel when he begins the book by saying, In the beginning was the Word. In other words, the Word was already there. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. Showing the distinction between the first and second person of the Trinity. Yet both eternal. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Would you believe that in the Jehovah's Witness Bible, they actually insert the word other in first in Colossians one sixteen, instead of reading it the way it says, that literally they have placed in it that he is the firstborn, and then it carries and it goes on to say that for by him all things. All other things were created in heaven and earth. It literally is inserted in the New World Translation. Not there in the Greek text, inserted by the translators of that particular text. And then later in verse 16, the JWs will say, All, thing, all other things were created through him and for him. We see clearly and literally from the text that Jesus himself is the one who is over all creation in fact verse sixteen continues in who he is by saying that he is himself the creator verse sixteen for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things were created through him and for him anything that exists has been created by christ now in a moment we'll talk just a little bit further about how this is what he has done but who he is the creator is important because in the bible we have uh... the beginning of the scripture elohim described as god the plural usage of the word for god and the spirit of god hovering over the face of the deep to create now we get a little more insight from the new testament that jesus himself is the agent of creation god the father wills creation using jesus as the agent of creation and the spirit of god hovering over the face of the deep the trinity intimately involved in the very creation of man he himself the creator it's accurate to say that jesus made that John 1, verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 17, we learn also who Jesus is, the Lord over all creation. Not only did he make it, he maintains his authority over all things. Everything. Verse 17, and he is before all things. Again, a reference to the being firstborn or preeminent. And in him, all things hold together. They actually Consist and stay together because of Christ. Scientists have for years and will for years debate not so much what makes up an atom or how small we can get to see the very things that make up life and so forth. Those things they can seem to come to answers to, at least by observation and see what it is. What they can't answer is what keeps an atom together. And I got the answer for them. Christ holds even the very atoms together, ultimately. That's a great mystery that every honest scientist comes to the end of himself with they see all the stuff they can observe but they've got to answer the question but what holds it together And we learn here while our thoughts are not his thoughts he gives us this clarity that jesus holds all things together hebrews one verse three says similarly he is the radiance of the glory of god and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In Hebrews, just like here in Colossians, we have the personal nature of his atonement for us. And then this huge, this huge issue of his sovereign lordship over very creation and upholding it. He cares about you personally and your salvation and upholds the very world we're part of by the word of his power. The Lord over all creation. You know what else he's in charge of and lord over? As the text starts to funnel down into a particular authority, verse 18 says he's the head of the church. He's the king. Head can mean authority and source. He is the authority, the source of the church. He creates the church, but he also is the one who's the authority over it. I say the authority over it. I'm not the authority over the church. A minister is not. A pastor is not. Bishops are not. The pope is not. It's Christ who is the head of his church. This became very important and personal to me because I was spiritually aware at a pretty young age. I was in the Roman Catholic Church. I believe I came to faith while I was there, not through the church, probably more in spite of what I heard there, but because people shared Christ with me, I had a certain amount of fear about God because I did get a picture, even I would say a biblical picture of God, in my otherness related to him, but one thing that consistently plagued me personally was the order and the structure of God's church. It seemed that I was being taught that I had to be related to the church in order to be related to Christ. And the church has a head on earth is what I was taught, and it was the pope coming from the bishops and the bishop of Rome being the prime one. As I studied it, I became more and more insecure with that idea just practically. Then as I started studying it more closely to be sure this is what was actually being taught, I went to what's called the first dogmatic constitution of the Church of Christ, the the first Vatican Council of the Roman Catholic Church. This is what was was written there, is written there, never been taken back. The Roman pontiff is the true vicar of Christ, the head of the whole church, and the father and teacher of all Christians. And to him was committed in blessed Peter by our Lord Jesus Christ, the full power of tending, ruling, and governing the whole church. That's what it says, it's never been taken back. Vatican II, which was an attempt to modernize the church, at least the way the church communicated, says this. Continuing in that same undertaking, this council is resolved to declare and proclaim before all men the doctrine concerning bishops, the successors of the apostles, who together with the successor of Peter, the vicar of Christ, the visible head of the whole church, govern the house of the living God. Now, I'm not here to down other people. I'm just saying this is too crucial, it's too intrinsic to who we are as Christians. To say that a man is the head of the church is to rob God of what he has done in giving his son headship over the church. In fact, part of the effort of our denomination when it started was to maintain this clarity. And in the 70s, when they put together our our Constitution, which is made up of the Westminster Confession and the Book of Church Order, there was a wonderful statement that I want to read part of it for you Starting the whole chapter 1, the, the first thing it addresses is called the king and head of the church in our Constitution, the very first thing. And listen to the wording. And notice the difference between the kind of wording I just read. It should sound familiar to you. Jesus Christ, upon whose shoulders the government rests, whose name is called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of whose government and peace there shall be no end, who sits upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever having all power given unto him in heaven and on earth by the Father, who raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. He has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all, he being ascended upon far above the heavens and has... He had might fill all things, received gifts for his church, and gave all offices necessary for the edification of his church and the perfecting of his saints. Albeit, Presbyterians use a lot of words to say something. But I hope you recognize where those words come from. It's the word of God. Just put together in a succinct form to tell us. And what does God do? He makes Christ the head of the church. Then Christ, the head of the church, gives spiritual gifts to the people of God to manifest Christ not themselves no gifts given to any individual to raise that person up but rather to edify the body that's the design he's the head of the church in that way he's the head we're the body the head controls the head determines the head dictates what the body does and we refer only to the head for that information and the head gives us that information and gives gifts so that we might see that information more clearly my role the eldership's role is to point you to the head that's what we are we are not the head and I've just spent some time criticizing a serious, erroneous doctrine. But Protestants have substituted that with personality-driven churches where the pastor is the authority. Uh, so we're no better in a lot of practical ways where the person is the church. This, too, is erroneous. The effort is to point to Christ always in every way as the head of the church. The last part of our statement, by the way, in the Constitution we call the Book of Church Order says, since the ascension of Jesus Christ to heaven, he is present with, with the church by his word and spirit, and the benefits of all his offices are effectually applied by the Holy Spirit. This is true. This refers to Jesus when he comes to the disciples after rising again and says to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He is the head of the church. But he's also, in verse 18, the firstborn from the dead. Again, carrying on this this understanding of the firstborn being the prominent one, being the privileged one, the privileged one among others, meaning here that he is the most important. Now, there have been other people raised from the dead before Christ, without doubt. The daughter of uh, Jairus we see in the Scriptures, the widow of of Nun's son, Lazarus, and there are others who have been raised that are without name, that are mentioned, uh, especially during the time of Jesus' death on the cross, that people rose. But Jesus is the privileged one. That is, his rising, again, is unique in that he is raised to never die again. He is raised to live forever. All those other individuals, poor Lazarus. He had to die twice. I mean, it was great to come up again, but he had to die again. He did go through that process twice. Christ raises as the firstborn among the dead, the first fruits of the resurrection, as Paul writes in the Corinthians, as being the first one to rise again, never to die again. And his body becomes the prototype of our resurrection body that will live for eternity. The firstborn from the dead. He's the preeminent one, verse 18. Again, flowing from this firstborn concept, or uh, the one who is uh, over all. The preeminent one. That he would be be preeminent. Preeminent literally means superior to or notable above all others, outstanding, dominant, noted, paramount in rank, dignity, and importance. I suppose there might be some way for us to downgrade what firstborn means. Maybe that's possible, or maybe even downgrade what head means. I suppose, but preeminent is a word that just by its very definition you cannot take away from it. I mean, it's saying in case he didn't get that he's head of all things. In case he didn't get he's firstborn. He's preeminent also, preeminent, paramount in rank, dignity, and importance. Now let me just say practically, why is this so important? This is a huge doctrinal diatribe. It's part of the Word of God. We study it. Sure, your, your eyes, your gaze will be lifted upwards as you consider the glory of Christ in this. But there's a, another practical ramification, brothers and sisters. You are confronted on a regular basis with who is your Lord. Is, is it my money? Is it my material possessions? Is it another religion, another faith? Is it there's just no way to know one truth? When Christ is presented in the way that he speaks and the way it is represented here in the text, we are left with no, no question whatsoever about who Jesus is. Jesus did not think Mohammed was one of God's prophets. Jesus did not think Buddha, Confucius, or Zoroaster, Astor, or even Moses was someone that can get you to the Father. He said clearly he was the only one that could. And he embodies all these things that Paul writes out so clearly and can be shown even in the very words Jesus spoke we have no choice when confronted with Jesus but to look and say honestly, he is either exactly who he says he is and everyone else falls down before him or he's basically a lunatic for saying all this. There's not a lot of option between the two. One or the other. He's preeminent, but he's also, and I use this in way that describes him. He is the Savior, the peacemaking, sacrificial Savior. Verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's important to understand in this context what is meant by reconciliation. Reconciliation is actually a pretty general term for setting things right. Uh, it can mean distinctly taking, uh, bringing two warring parties together. That's clearly a meaning that's uh, embodied in much of what Paul says. Here he's speaking in terms of the general, uh, the general order that's somewhat chaotic now before christ but in christ he brings things back into order he reconciles that which was not at rest not in its right way of working the blood of his cross purchases that reconciliation so he's a peacemaking a reconciling sacrificial savior it's not enough just to say that he's a savior it's to say also he had the way he saved was to put peace between us and god to set it right our relationship right which could only be done by the blood of his cross very simply christ is the image of the invisible god the firstborn of all creation the creator the lord over creation the head of the church the firstborn from the dead the preeminent one and the peacemaking sacrificial savior it just makes me sick that quote unquote scholars spend all sorts of time and money getting together to have a council decide who jesus was well jesus has no trouble knowing who he is and tells us do you know they make a Bible that has color codes in it to determine what Jesus really or really, really, said or really didn't say? And the total basis is on whether human people reading it with anti-supernatural presuppositions decide a person could really say this or not. That's the scholarly basis for that, for what's called the search for the historical Jesus. Well, we found the historical Jesus. He's here, revealed to us by the Scripture, preserved by the Holy Spirit, given to us in infallible form so that we might trust with our very soul on Christ the Lord. What has he done? We know who he is, but what has he done? All related to who he is, of course. First, he's created all things. All things were created through him and for him in verse 16. For Jesus to create all things, he has to be eternal himself. He's the very agent of creation. And I realize there are so many debates about the whys and the wherefores of cosmogony as it's related to the book of Genesis. What I see is absolutely essential, however, no matter where you come down on some of these details, is that God created everything out of nothing. By the word of his power, and that he did so without the use of of an evolutionary process in the macro sense of the word. Species beget their own species by his created order. And it's done by the agent of creation, Christ Himself. Christ is the one who does this. He's the creator. He made all things. That's what he has done. But he did something else. He's provided reconciliation for those who are in his body and also for all things. But consider first, 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, verse 18, remember, refers to Christ as the head of the church. This context is important. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. His death provided a satisfying atonement for the sins of those who would trust in Him. So He has reconciled individual people to God as part of His act of reconciliation. He gives us reconciliation with the Father by providing His perfect and complete atoning death. That's a portion of what He does to reconcile. That is not all that He does. He has also provided reconciliation for all things. Look at what it says. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself... All things. What is meant here is that he is to put in order things as they should be under his dominion, under his authority, under his lordship. Uh, From the time of the fall, from the time of Christ's work on the cross, there was this sense of relative unorderliness. That's not to say at all that God stopped being sovereign. That's part of his plan itself. But the point is is to manifest Christ as a name above all names. He would work all history together to bring this time where Christ was conceived in the womb of a virgin, raised and lived a sinful life, died on the cross, defeat death, and from that point, the clear lordship that he has over all things takes place at that moment and goes on today. He reconciles all things, not just your personal salvation, but all the order that needs to come up under his dominion, that needs to return to the way it was before the fall that's all working now that's what he has done and what he is continuing to do he's a reconciler of all things we know for instance is, is what is not the case and i've heard this said see this is a doc, this shows universalism in other words he reconciles all things that means he makes everyone right with god Everyone, no matter what, whether they they profess faith in his name or not. That's clearly not what's being taught here. We know by many other passages, probably one of the most vivid is when Paul writes to the Thessalonians and he says, In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Clearly it's not saying that he reconciled the devil to God. It's not what's being said here rather he set things in order that his lordship may be exerted over all of it part of that involved reconciling a people for god he is the head of the body the church the beginning the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent he's provided reconciliation for all things but what is jesus doing right now we know who he is what he has done what is he doing right now well some of what he has done is perpetual that is it's continuing to go on today for instance, in verse 17, as I just alluded to, he is holding all things together still right now. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Really, the thing that, the unseen power that holds all things together right now, perpetually, is Christ holding it all together. Why is this important? Well, he's not the clockmaker who just made the clock and let it run. Providentially, he consistently and constantly works to see all things come to pass. And he upholds everything. All that, quote-unquote, natural order is Lorded over by Christ moment by moment, second by second. This is an important truth that separates the difference between just observing some facts that we can see and real knowledge. Who really upholds this? And when we know who really upholds this, we study the world with a new new, new standard of respect. Lord, I cannot know everything. I will search it. I will study your world. I will put it under a microscope. I will read. I will study some more. But in the end, my thoughts are not your thoughts. God, revealed to us how it is that we might be humble before our studies, knowing that you are the one who provides all the answers, either this life or the next. He holds all things together. He also, though, currently, and this is what's so exciting to me, leading his church and his mission work. We could study this at its own sermon, its own subject, its own course, for that matter, on how he's leading his church. But we we gather very uh, simply from verse 18. He's the head of the body, the church. And then with that reality, attached to it, all the various verses in Scripture, all the various commands of Christ to go, therefore, and do, to be this, to be that, to be about the work of this, the work of that, All of that is being led by our head, Christ. He's the one that's actually promoting the church on earth. He's the one who says, I will build my church. And he chooses to do so amazingly through us. I've always thought, well, if Jesus just stayed on earth perpetually after his glorification, couldn't he have have grown the church better? He says no. Uh, How can that be? Well, what if we just rent out Arrowhead and get Jesus to come and speak there? Wouldn't that do it? But in God's great providence, he believed that by turning 12 people loose, they wouldn't turn make 60 and 70 loose, and then over and over and over, in the only legitimate pyramid scheme of all time, that would continue to grow and grow and grow, and you would have this impact of God, Christ's church. Christ is actually there as the head of his church, no less there than if he would be sitting in a throne in Jerusalem or somewhere else. So his great plan in leading his church to be the head of the church means he's intimately involved in the growth and expansion and the sanctification of his church. The ministry of reconciliation is that, is the work of the church, who's led by Christ, who are led by Christ. What else is he doing? Verse twenty, he's claiming his rightful possession over all things. You know, part of Jesus is coming and paying for the sins of his elect and to start reconciling all things to himself on the cross was not just to save people; it was to bring things back into order. And so, what he has done in coming again in defeating death on the cross is he is asserting his rightful, possessive ownership over all things. And he does it through the church primarily. The church's sanctification, our being more in the, uh, exemplifying the image of Christ, makes us able to impact culture and the world in a way that spreads his rightful ownership over all things. This is what is meant. I read in verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, By the blood of his cross. The blood of his cross, the culmination of a life lived perfectly before God, qualifying him, as it it were, to be the one who takes possession. That the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I make the nations a footstool in Psalm 110. He's worthy of it. He has the authority to take up all things captive to himself. The natural question that arises when you study such a doctrinally heavy passage not only can we see who Jesus is, we can see what Jesus has done in very succinct form. We can see what Jesus is doing. And if you notice, every one of those subheadings, you can then do its own Bible study on what, how else that's played out. That's what's so beautiful about these six simple verses, is that it leads you into a course of study that pervades the rest of Scripture. But the final question I have for you, beloved, is this. What are you doing in light of who Jesus is? It's not good enough just to sit here with a little tingle, a little warm fuzzy, because... We believe Jesus is, this, uh, is all this. What it's meant to do is prompt us, move us into action. First, ask yourself, how does your life reflect the supremacy of Christ? I mean, would someone identify you first by the profession you have or the family you have or by something you own? Or would they first identify you in this first level identity as a person in Christ? Christ. Verse 18, that in everything, everything he might be preeminent. I think what's common, and I've done it myself in times of my life, I have something in my life that is out of balance. It may or may not be intrinsically sinful, but it's out of balance. It's too important to me. It's taken the place of Christ. It's taken a a seat on the throne of my heart. It's become an idol. And I basically say to God, look, God, I've given you 95% of everything else. But this 5%, just please leave me alone about this. And I'm effectively saying without saying that I don't want you to have lordship over every aspect of my life, just, just most of it, just the parts that everybody really sees. But the text says, brothers and sisters, that in everything he might have preeminence. How does your life reflect the supremacy of Christ? Some six or seven years ago, there was a family in the church whose uh, the wife's mother was dying. For the last several weeks of her life, she didn't want to die in a hospital, so she wanted to stay with her daughter and their family. And they didn't have a way to have her upstairs or downstairs because if she had to leave quickly for hospital care, they wouldn't be able to get her quick enough. And so they made a room for her right in the middle room. And the way the layout of the house was is when you walked in, the dining room was right there. It was the biggest room on the first floor, really. So they made it into basically her room for the last several weeks of her life. So when you walked into that house, there was no question about where the the household was functioning around and orbiting around. It was taking care of her. And it was really a positive experience for the last several weeks of this lady's life because she was able to communicate with the family and have that time. But for that time, the house was definitely defined by the person who's living in the center of the house. Is Christ living in the center of your house? Someone knocks on your door. Will they know that Christ is preeminent here? Secondly, the question that we have to ask ourselves in light of Christ is done, who he is, what he's doing. How are we being used in Christ's work of reconciliation? Now, there's only a brief allusion to this ministry in these verses. But listen to what Paul says to the Corinthians i uh, going, I guess, the next level of this concept of reconciliation. Here it is, though, Paul's writing to us right now, because he is. He says to the Corinthians, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. In other words, have spiritual eyes now. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So he reconciles us, not just so we sit in in some uh, fortress, but rather that we go out in reaction to our own reconciliation to God and see others reconciled. Because what happened when we were reconciled? When I was reconciled with God, I became reconciled with you. When I was reconciled with you, I became reconciled with the creation that God has given my view is different now reconciliation is is thorough and so when we're reconciled there's the opening now to have real reconciliation that happens not just people acting like they get along but actual love for one another that's based on substance who is Christ this is what he alludes to early in the book when he thanks God for what he's doing in their lives but he says this to the Corinthians the same way behold the old has passed away the new has come he says later That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, the church, the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For all the possible theological differences or denominational distinctives, the one thing we've got to maintain, brothers and sisters here, is that we preach Christ He's the only one that can save people. He's the only one that can bring the war to an end between man and God. He's the only one that can really truly give eternal assurance of someone's salvation. And for all the things we may get into, if we get away from Christ and Christ crucified, we have lost our first love. And here we have... This challenge when we see who Jesus is again, how are we being used in Christ's work of reconciliation? And finally, the question I close with, are you willing, my brothers and my sisters, to stand up for Christ in the midst of a pluralistic culture that embraces all sorts of saviors? I fear, hearing the media today, that the church has lost so much salt in our, in our day that Christians, just don't, we just don't want to be judged by the world. We want to be left to do our own thing. We want to just have our assemblies, be tax-exempt, and just be happy. Don't. We won't tell you what to do. Just let us do our thing. That's how pathetic the church has gotten in America. It used to be that it was a commonplace for a public figure to say they trusted in Christ for salvation. Very president speeches are littered with it. I mean, you can't read anything Lincoln wrote without a clear understanding of what he thought personally. No matter what you thought of his politics, he clearly. And it was accepted in that day. Now, if a if a public figure, anyone says anything like that, they're jumped on as being extremists and fanatics. My point is the church has sat back for so long it's been so worried about people not accepting us that we have not stood up in the midst of pluralism and said, there is only one Lord. And it's not our stuff. It's not Mohammed. It's not this. It's not that. It's not Tom Cruise. It's Christ. And I don't love you, culture. I don't want to see you saved if I won't say it. I just want to be happy on my own. And I just tell you that is not the heart of Jesus. It's not the heart of Christ. He gave us to be salt and light, which preserves and saves. This is what we're to be about. Are you willing to stand up for Christ in the midst of a pluralistic culture that may look different for you in your neighborhood, in your workplace, and wherever it is that God has you? But we are called to stand up for Christ, not just for two reasons, to maintain his glory before the world, even those who scoff, but also also so that people might hear the truth from someone, the only people that have it. Let's pray. Lord, we know that in Christ we have a love that never can be fathomed completely, a love that can never die, a life that can never die a righteousness that can never be tarnished, a peace that can never be understood, a rest that can never be disturbed, a joy that can never be diminished, a hope that can never truly be disappointed, a glory that can never be clouded, a light that can never be darkened, a purity that can never be defiled, a beauty that can never be marred, a wisdom that can never be baffled, resources that never, ever become exhausted. And this is only found in Jesus. We say this professing with our lips, but believing it in our hearts in wanting to see all men and women come to faith everywhere in the Savior, the only Savior, Christ. We pray this for his glory. Amen. This morning we respond with a wonderful hymn celebrating Christ and his headship over the church. Let's stand together and sing 347.